Cardinal Vyshinsky, he said to the secret police who were about to listen to his sermon, he just pointed to the two secret police guys and says, gentlemen, it's a long sermon today. You need two reels. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app. Evan Gilvray has written a number of books on Poland, as well as biographies. He's well-versed in Poland and Polish society, and away from the usual locations of Krakow and Warsaw. Evan first visited Poland in 1986, five years after the Declaration of Martial Law, which triggered the suppression of the Free Trade Union Solidarity in December 1981. He visited some friends he had made via correspondence who lived in the city of Łódź, the third largest city in Poland and an industrial centre. He provides us with great insight away from the intelligentsia as his friends were workers. We hear in some detail how the Communist Party was perceived, life as a worker, as well as views on Lech Valenza and solidarity. In the 1990s, Evan interviewed General Jaruzelski, who, as first secretary of the Polish United Workers' Party, also known as the Communist Party, gave the martial law order in 1981 and remained head of state until 1989. If you're enjoying the podcast, please share it with your friends. It really does help us grow the number of listeners. Now, I do need help to continue to track down these unknown stories of the Cold War and ensure that they are preserved before they are lost. If you can spare it, I'm asking listeners to pledge a small monthly amount per month to help keep us on the air, although larger amounts are welcome too. Plus, you will get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a monthly financial supporter, and you bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. Peter Ryan is our host today, and I'm delighted to welcome Evan Gilvray to our Cold War Conversation. The 1980s for me was interesting regarding Poland because, of course, it started off with the Solidarity Times, and that interested me. I only could watch it from TV, and then when that was crushed, as we thought, I thought, oh, well. And then, for some reason, an opportunity came up in 1986 to visit some friends I'd made through correspondence to visit the city of Łódź, the most unfashionable part of Poland, I just think. And that's how I started going out there. So what was what was Vuj like when you arrived? Can you give us a, a setting of the scene to first impressions and so forth? When I travelled from Warsaw to Łódź um, or by train, <laughs> even getting on the train was nobody seemed to speak English. And um, I just showed a lady my ticket and she made sure I got off at the right place. It was the terminus anyway. But what got me first off was a Catholic priest got on and started saying his prayers. And I'm thinking, oh, my grief, how bad is this journey going to be? <laughs> and he, anyway, when I got to Wooj, I just got out this train, nobody to meet me, and I just saw a vast array of taxis. Must be about 50 taxis standing in line. And the city just looked grim, because it was. And then I just showed my friend's visiting card to a taxi driver and he his address was so obscure he just had to walk up and down the taxi line asking his fellow drivers where the street was and then we were off the taxi was so shabby it was unbelievable the fare meter had to have a big sign times two everything was double um because basically the the fair meter just couldn't register the figures and the inflation was yet to really kick in. Mm-hmm. And then he dropped me off by a huge block of flats. And I thought, oh, no, don't tell me she lives in these block of flats. And it was like one of these sort of post-70s Soviet-style massive blocks of flats. But I saw this lady, and again, I showed her this address because I had no Polish at the time. And amazingly, it was my friend's sister-in-law 
who took me into this little tiny block, a single story block of flats. Well, they were, I didn't understand at the time, they actually were a series of rooms. Each room accommodated a family. So families were living in single rooms with children or whatever. Such was um, uh, the housing shortage in Poland at that time. And from there, I got to know my friends. But so initial impressions there was outside of this house, you just saw poverty, uncut grass, a huge pump. I was yet to learn that was my friend's source of water, you know, outside privies, this sort of thing, in the middle of a major city. But going into the home, because it was um, the my friend's mother's name day, I was shocked at the array of foods available. And again, I didn't understand it was more like wartime rationing in the UK where the families worked together to provide whatever was needed for a, basically what looked to me to be a feast. When I looked at the table, although I must say, I thought, oh, my God, everything looks so disgusting. And I was, what do you want? So I just, I recognise things like tomatoes and eggs. I don't like eggs. And so I just pointed at something, and that turned out to be jellied calf's hill, zimnu nogi, they call it in Polish. And I was cautioned, just put some vinegar on it. Now, what was weird to me is the vinegar was clear in colour, but the vodka was brown because it was homemade bimba, hooch, if you will. So, yeah, it was a really one of the first impressions of Polish people in a family situation, really friendly. But when I landed at the airport, I remember the customs lady just screaming at me in Polish because I must have gone down the wrong place or something. And then you had the, some circling back a little bit on my very first day, the Orbis official guide who was going to take me around Warsaw. I dumped him. Um, everything he wanted for dollars. And at one level, hotels, official levels, all they saw Western people were as some kind of financial milk cow. You know, they just wanted the dollars off you so they can exchange it for their zwati and making a bit out of it. So there's like two Polands, you know, when they the friends are good, but outside certain people will see you as a way of getting raising cash. Well, you know, it was so... Sort of, I'd never encountered anything like that before. It was very odd. How did you find getting around without speaking Polish? Were you able to make yourself understood and read in ready fashion? Was there any English language fluency amongst the Polish people that you would have encountered? No. Um, I had a phrase book, which was a bit useful. I just pointed to things if I needed anything. <laughs> Within the hotels, yes, they did. Obviously, the hotel front desk staff spoke English. And I remember the porter, the first thing he said to me was, dollars change dollars. <laughs> that might have been the limit of his English, but um, <laughs> it's what he wanted. But you know, on the whole, it was quite difficult. Traveling to Wuj in the same trip, you know, another time in the same year, I met a Polish student who spoke very good English. But on the whole, I'd say 99% of the people didn't speak English or not the ones I met. Did you have an curious encounter in Warsaw with an elderly gentleman who he told me he would be being a German soldier during the war and remained in Poland which is a bit odd and he told me about the changing of the guard was about to happen but he recognized me as an English speaker probably the way I was dressed you know Levi 501 jeans you know dressed mm -hmm. totally different to the locals and and he didn't want anything he just gave this piece of information to me in English so English speakers at that time were rare, but the oddest experience is a little bit out of this remit that we're doing at the moment, was once I was in a very downtown market in Wuj, where a bit of a flea market, this guy is selling shoelaces and whatnot, so I, and I asked him in Polish, and he answered me back in English, because they time I could speak Polish by the 90s, and it turned out he'd been in the DP camps, the displaced person camps, just after the Second World War, and he spoke fluent English which shook me because I've met students I taught who struggled with English. And this guy who was selling shoelaces spoke fluent English. It just shook me. But to answer your question shortly, very few people spoke English. And tell me, how was the young British citizen received by the Polish people? What was the, the welcome like sort of in general when people found out you were from the UK? Curious, you know, they were sort of curious, you know, uh, um, they couldn't 
manage much. I think they sometimes thought I was a bit. Uh, it's old things like um, barn and ice cream. So I went to the in, in the old square in Walsall and paid my money. So I'd work out how much an ice cream cost, and they gave me a plastic token, and I just looked at that. So I might be ripped off. What I might be scammed. <laughs> and a teacher came over, you know, a school teacher who was with a school outing, and she took me by the hand and took me to the ice cream kiosk where I handed over my. Um, disc and gave me I got an ice cream for it uh, um, I thought I could have made more conversation with people if we could have spoke languages curiosity was the thing and you know you just stood out um, not many people had wristwatches for instance which seemed weird to me um, so that people asked me what the time was and more people it's very hard to explain they just it's, I mean, it's curiosity. That's how it was. Curious. We had no common language really at that time um, outside of my friend's family. Um, Western people were still curious to them, and they asked, and they, I think they all sort of looked up to Western people. I don't know why. That leads me to uh, to my next question. It segues perfectly. What were the impressions that you found that Polish people at the time had of, say, Western Europe or the United Kingdom? Did they have any preconceptions? Did they have any any thoughts about what the UK might be like? Or was it fueled by what they might have been hearing in terms of propaganda? Well, I think one thing with propaganda, they tend to ignore their own propaganda. Okay. So... They thought everything was possible in the West. That was what they felt. And they really admired Margaret Thatcher, which um, I less had a, um, didn't really think much of her, to be quite frank. Um, there was, and, I, and I lived in southern England, so I didn't have the real reasons like people in northern England really despised that woman. But um, they really admired her because they felt that she knew how to speak to the Soviets. Okay, and you know the Iron Lady and all this sort of stuff, um, and they just thought that the West was a great place of opportunity. Um, they a lot of them worked illegally in London, um, going to Germany, um, a lot of smuggling trips to Germany. I think what I got from conversations within the family as it became, and the West was just somewhere it was an aspiration to them. I think they could get there perhaps one day. Um, I know my friends really aspire to go to Canada to live. Um, so the West was all it was good. A bit like um, West Side Story when the Puerto Ricans think everything's possible in America. Mm-hmm. The Polish people I met just thought the West was a lot, endless possibilities. And it's interesting because we know that there, especially in the United States, there's huge pockets of a Polish community. Chicago would probably be, be the biggest one. Did you find that people would perhaps have interacted with the relatives they might have had in Western Europe or in the United States that might have fueled those impressions of the West being the land of opportunity? Well, absolutely, because um, I, one aunt had a brother in Chicago and my Friend had a friend who lives in Canada, hence the wanting to go to Canada. And because these people were able to get houses, own houses, um, own cars, because I mean, cars were difficult to get in Poland, and mm-hmm. fuel was even harder to get. So, you know, you, you get a car, you buy a car, you go to the gas station, petrol stations, we say here, and fill it up, no problems, nothing's on ration. No, lo- so much stuff was on ration in Poland. You can go to the shop and buy as much groceries as you can possibly afford there's no nothing's on ration nothing's short you didn't need dollars or a special currency to buy the good stuff you just used your local currency all these things were good for them you know and and their families would write back and their families would send them dollars back so they look like they are in they may have very modest jobs but they had surplus income to send hard currency back to the people back in poland which then can be exchanged on the black market for better stuff or used in the pevex shops the hard currency stores so at every level it seemed to them that things were possible very possible in the west from their friends and families doing well but of course their friends and families did not talk about the minutiae living in these countries you know the taxes um the niggling neighbor you might have or you might have to put in a whole load of overtime to make this money to send back to your family that was either ignored or not discussed. That was the thing. 
Evan, how were events that were going on in the West covered by the media in Poland at the time? Were there any particular ones that stood out while you were there that you recall? Not really, no. Um, I should imagine the regime, if it was anything too positive, didn't cover it. I think the only thing that they were interested in was papal visits. You know, obviously it was Pope John Paul II, mm-hmm. the Polish yeah. Pope. Those were forever fantastic things. I actually went to a papal mass in 1991 and, whoa, the Poles really look forward to that sort of thing. But um, I remember looking at Polish newspapers. It only had four um, sides to the newspapers. You know, the front page would probably be party propaganda, then sort of some local gossip, sports, and the TV guide for the night on the back. You know, so the not, news wasn't covered that much. And to be honest with you, they just turned off the news. Yeah. It came on. They had a, one program which probably was more popular. It was called Teleexpress. That was the news delivered at great speed within 15 minutes. That's the total broadcast. And that would come dush so fast. It was amazing. I assume, though, if I had been in Krakow, for instance, and amongst so-called intellectual people, they might have been listening to Radio Free Europe or have an access to that sort of Radio Liberty, Radio Free Europe. But you asked me about what I knew of my – these people became my family because I obviously met my wife out there. Mm-hmm. They were just ordinary workers, and they really didn't care. They had enough to get on with. Right, right, right. Well, taking that as a bit of a theme, what was life like for the average Pole who might have been a worker – what would they have done in their spare time? What would have a trip to the supermarket have been like for them? Well, supermarkets were largely empty, unfortunately. That was a reality. So um, spare time would be for the guys who were probably doing home repairs. You know, if, um, I remember my cousin Vieshek and Janusz as well, fixing their cars when they had cars. You know, um, Sometimes they had a car between them or they had some old jalopy and a lot of time doing repairs and home maintenance. Um, they also tended, I noticed, to have parties on a Saturday night, which was interesting. So, so they looked forward to that feature of the week because there was really nowhere to go. There were no pubs. So they mm-hmm. would do family parties. Quite often, that legitimate party, shall we say, when have somebody's name day or some occasion. And sometimes they just had parties for the sheer hell. But um, shopping... Oh, it was a very hard thing, I think. For the, la- the ladies did it. The guys just didn't do shopping. And the women could also work an eight-hour shift, look after the kids, and go shopping, which we had a queue for a long time for, like for meat, which was on ration, unless you had a- a- another way of getting foods. And I do remember my aunt Yadviga, she went out at something like five in the morning and came back with stuff I wouldn't give to the dog. But there we are. Ah, mm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. But within... My family, they had um, family out in the countryside with where they could get eggs and meat and stuff from, you know, off the farm, off the smallholding and things like that. So a lot of self-sufficiency. And a lot of people also had a thing called a jowka, a smallholding, um, an allotment. I don't know how it translates in other English-speaking countries. But basically it's, it's like a big garden where they could grow fruit, maybe have a couple of chicken and things like that. So self-sufficiency was the order rather than shopping. Let's switch a little bit in terms of popular culture. And I'd love to find out back in the 1980s in Poland what the sort of popular music would have been, what would have been listened to. Did they have access to Western music or was it mainly from the East Bloc? Um, popular music, I think, as German and Swedish rock music was very popular, sort of heavy metal wow. okay. stuff. But I remember 
Um, I went to Poland in 86 and I came home. And then a few months after that visit, I was watching Top of the Pops, which was a very popular program in the UK. It's gone now on, on TV. And basically it was the top 40 of the popular what was popular in Britain that week. And I heard this song and it was the final countdown. And I thought, I've heard that before. And then it hit me. Oh, my God, I heard that in Poland a few months back. It was by Europa, a Swedish rock group. And so sometimes they were ahead of the curve. Wow. But they had, yeah, I mean, I was shocked. I mean, I heard this in Poland first. <laughs> um, and they had on the coast um, a punk festival every year, which really surprised me. Really? But, yeah. And, and, and some Scandinavian punks would come to this festival, which really surprised me. And they they had basically they kept looking to the West for their music, especially like I said Germany. In fact, one of the guys, a chap called Les Humphreys, came from my hometown and was a friend of my father's. My father always said, "Oh, Les is very big in Germany." I thought, "Oh, whatever." And then I'm flicking through a Polish rock magazine, which I can't really read, and then this name Les Humphreys kept coming up. Oh my word, this guy's a bit more popular than I anticipated, but not in the UK. So, I mean, the music tastes were different to what I was used to, and some of it I thought was a bit ill. But one story I will tell you, though, is I would send new CDs, albums, you know, vinyls, as it was in those Mm -hmm. days, to Cousin Janusz. And initially I thought it was a bit rude, and I realized what was going on. He would record them, then he'd sell the original album I'd sent him on the black market for dollars, and he was able to get stuff like medicine for his mother or for his kids or a treat or whatever, but always plowed it back in the family. So if Poles got hold of original Western music on original discs, they would pirate it and then sell the originals on the black market for dollars. I have to ask, what style of music did Les Humphreys play? I think it was some sort of poppy rock who I call um, easy listening or something, you know. If he's the same age as my father, he'd been born in the 30s, you know. And okay. It didn't take off in England. Huh? <laughs> well, I guess I guess any any port in a storm. Did well, did you did you hear much of uh, Dean Reed in Poland back in the 1980s? Do you remember him being popular? No, no. Okay. It doesn't mean to say he wasn't. You know, it might have been. You know, his cousin Janusz was a real you know Genesis and Queen fiend, all this sort of stuff. So. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If he wasn't in that genre, I probably didn't get to hear him. <laughs> Got it. Okay, cool. Evan, what was the what was the television beyond the the current events programs? What type of TV shows would have been playing on Polish uh, networks, or what would you have found in the cinema? Was there anything that jumped out at you of note that perhaps came from the West, or was it all mainly locally produced? I think a lot of it was locally produced because Wuj is the film school area anyway. Was one thing. Okay. Wow. Um, what's his name? Polanski trained there. A lot of the top uh, Polish film directors and that actually trained in Wuj. But um, cinemas, I mean, they were tiny little places. I didn't actually go into any until I moved out there in the 90s. But there seemed to be like always one of the Second World War from the outside, a little keen over it and over the top. And I really couldn't work out what they were showing. Polish TV seemed to be a complete mishmash of stuff. You know, I remember. They're just showing families doing judo once on the TV at Christmas time. I thought, this is bizarre. Why? <laughs> um, the news, as I said, was really a bit mad. Flintstones in Polish was curious. <laughs> and, and I remember in the UK, we actually had Polish film Night and Day ran as a series on Channel 4. But I think, oh, yes, there was one, Hoppy Peasants. That was a good program. I liked that. You know, I followed it as best I could. That was quite a long runner. But they, I think they tried getting their idea of culture. You know, obviously, Polish classics were very popular. Mm-hmm. The Saint was popular with old people. But yeah, there was some old. And I remember watching Jaws one Christmas and Yarvs, as they said, because J A W S, Yarvs, they pronounced it. <laughs> they kept me, Yarvs, Yarvs. What on earth is Yarvs? And I, Jaws. And I fell asleep probably because I'd drunk too much vodka at the party. And, um, and I thought, Golly, I woke up and thought, God, this film's finishing. They haven't censored it that much, surely. Because that's how my mind thought they censored everything. But they, I don't think the polls really did censor too much. Uh, um, TV, I think, if, if it was Western, they would watch it regardless. I think there was a manual was on one evening, and 
of course, they all ran home to watch it. You know, the soft porn film. I wonder if, yeah, there is one story. They made a film called Sex Missia in the 80s. And that is, again, some, it's a space thing, but sort of soft porn Odyssey 2001 or something film. You know, they sort of half a C. Clark with no clothes on. And that was very popular. They were very proud of that film. They were Sex Missia. The Smurfs were popular. You remember the Smurfs? I do, yeah. yeah I, I yeah, had that, a big that, collection that was, of them. Yeah, that was very popular. So a lot of Western oh. stuff was popular, but there was, you know, there's some Polish classics. And sometimes I wish that British TV would show some of the Polish stuff. You know, like Hoppy Peasants is a very good story. It's um, four seasons in the 1870s of a, a Polish village and how they their lives are, their adventures, their misadventures, and so on. And I think people would be interested. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm actually thinking that Christmas Day watching Jaws might actually be more palatable than the annual showing of The Sound of Music that they put on in Canada. I probably shouldn't say that because Christopher Plummer just passed away and I know no ill will meant, but um, I was always a big Jaws fan. So anyway, so Evan, in terms of the the experience that you had just sort of day-to-day life within Wuj and within your, your time in Poland, was there ever any point where you felt that you might've been watched or surveyed by the intelligence services? No, not at all. I mean, I remember being on a train in the mid eighties with a young student, young lad, and he was telling me about the meat shortages in Poland. In English, we had this thing, and we spent the two hours from Warsaw to Wuj discussing all these sort of things. And he got off. He says, only in Poland could meat be a political question. And I thought, this country is not scared of its intelligence services. But a guy I know who lives in Bradford now, he was training to be a priest. But basically, it was the um, Cardinal Wyszynski. He said to the secret police who were in, who were about to listen to his um, sermon he just pointed to the two secret police guys and says, gentlemen, it's a long sermon today. You need two reels. That priest was not scared of the secret service. It doesn't sound like it. It really doesn't. And that's a, that's a nice angle to talk a little bit about the whole interaction between the regime and the Catholic Church. What was that coexistence like based on what you saw when you were in Poland? Well, the Catholic Church was obviously the dominant partner of these of Polish society in my mind. I mean, the Secret Service, I can't honestly know if I saw it. it was, the Secret Service was ignored. The Catholic Church was respected, especially by the rural people living in the villages and by those born before the 50s, I'd say. But a decent amount of young people also respected the church. Um, if you went to Mass, and I am a practicing Catholic, I really, really get to have to stand up in a church, let alone stand outside in the cold on the steps, you know, some distance from the, the building itself, because that is how the churches were in the 80s, absolutely packed beyond belief. And the church and solidarity were seen as working together all the time. I mean, that is secret service, you know, these intelligence services, they were nowhere in my mind. But the church was very dominant by the 80s. And, of course, having Pope John Paul II as the leader of the Catholic Church really helped. What were your overall impressions of the regime in Poland in the 1980s? What, what stuck out for you in terms of what, what it was like, its orientation, its approach to governance? Well, it just wasn't really there. I mean, I... You get off an airplane at Warsaw in those days, and there's a soldier fully armed at the bottom of the steps, and that's the last bit of, of the regime you see. You really just didn't, I mean, you didn't. I remember speaking to the Polish defence attaché in London in, in the late 90s, and he said to me once, did you ever see a red flag in Poland? I said, apart from the 22nd of July, the Communist um, Independence Day, no. Did you see statues? No. basically communist Poland did not look like communist Poland. There was nothing really to suggest the communists are running, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, I really expected to see these 
banners, you know, and lots of things, you now forward with a party and all this sort of stuff. And the only time I saw anything like that was, again, in the 90s, in a factory museum where they, the banners and the placards were being used for clearing snow. It just You just didn't note the, notice the communist regime in Poland unless I feel you were some dissident or really acting against the regime. If you did, most people just got on with their lives and ignored the regime. New Year's Eve, when Jaruzelski addressed the, the people, he just got turned off. They didn't buy the paper. They didn't buy the party paper. Well, my wife's family certainly didn't. Um, they bought the local Wooch paper and um, a dreadful paper called Express, <laughs> um, which was basically, as I described to you, probably some prop- propaganda on the front. Um, on Fridays, I had a young lady who decided to take her blouse off and TV guide sports, and that's it. They had, there was no real interaction with ordinary people. They may have joined in the strikes in the early 80s, but on the whole, they just kept away from the regime, you know, and I think the regime kept away from them. I remember reading a BBC report, um, summary of world broadcasts, and Jaruzelski supposed to have visited a factory in the mid-80s, and apparently they took all the rough factory girls out, as they described them, gave them the day off, and put the girls from the office into the factory so Yalzowski could meet some nice gentle ladies rather than these rough industrial factory girls. I mean, so the ordinary workers ignored the regime, and I think the regime ignored them, unless they kicked off. The impression you're giving me, Evan, is that unlike a lot of the East Bloc countries that we've heard about on Cold War conversations, where there was an omnipresent sense of the regime that really encapsulated work, education, and home life, in in Poland, it seems that they were almost lurking in the background, but really never out there. Absolutely. Yeah. That's exactly what it is like that. The communists never really got into Poland proper, especially... After 56, when Gomorka took over, my wife's grandmother, who she was born in 1914, so you can guess how old she was, you know, late 40s, early mm-hmm. 50s. And she did say, yeah, when Beirut, the Stalinists were running Poland, you did put that red flag on your building or your name got taken. It was hard, she said. But once Gomorka came in, communism was virtually over in Poland, apart from you know, the occasional workers' uprising. And you had the scarcity of um, consumer goods I've already described. But on the whole, there was not a, an oppressive regime, you know, unless you chose to revolt. And I think it's quite interesting how many different leaders they had in Poland during the communist regime. I think they got through one every 10 years on average. Some lasted six mm-hmm. months. Gomorka lasted 20-odd years. While you look at some of the other countries, they lasted for 40 and 50, no, for 30, 40 years. Because yeah. Poland kept, kept changing their regimes. What did the Polish people have in terms of their own impressions about the Soviets? What, what did you pick up when perhaps something about the Soviet Union was discussed or when you would see it on television or, or in any aspect of, of popular culture? Generally speaking, what was their view of the whole element of the Soviets and their place in the East Bloc? Well, obviously they knew that the Soviets are in charge, mm-hmm. but... They disliked the Russians because then that predates communism, of course, you know, because of the imperial system and the partitions of Poland. But um, I remember arguing with them as best I could about Gorbachev, because in the West, as you may recall, Gorbachev was seen as this um, reformer, somebody we could yeah. work with, so on. And they just said, no, their attitude was, he's a bloody Russian, end of story, don't trust him. We like Reagan, we like Thatcher. You know, they just didn't trust the Russian. And, and again, you the only time I saw Russian armed forces in Poland was in 1991. In fact, it was the time of the coup, which thought, oh, my God, what's going on here? Basically, it was a Russian army truck passing through Wuj. And the following year, when the Russian tanks were going back eastward on um, on, ra- on ra- 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 um, train flatbeds, you know, the tanks were passed up on trains and being driven back to taken back to Russia. I mean, you had very little interaction with the um, Soviets. Even the guys, virtually all of Ella's um, family had been in, um, conscripted into the Polish army, you know, for the military service. And apart from one uncle who had served in the 50s, they actually had very little interaction with the Soviet forces. 
Um, there were no, like NATO, have war games between the various NATO armies and exercises together. There was very little, if any, interaction with the Soviet armies or any of the Warsaw Pact armies. So basically, in short... Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. The Soviet Union really made little impact on ordinary people's lives. Um, you know, they knew they were in charge and they could get invaded if they went like the Czechs have been invaded and the Hungarians have been invaded. And indeed, I was in Poland for the 1989 elections when the Communist Party were kicked into touch. And I said to my cousin, what do you think is going to happen now? And he actually thought the Soviets might militarily intervene. Mm-hmm. Whereas we know, nothing happened. Yeah. So That's basically, right. I mean, Poland always stood, the Soviets were always a little bit afraid of Poland, I feel, because it was such a big country. And it was, I mean, were they scared? They also knew that the Polish army would go on the Polish people's side. That's yes, sort of an unwritten thing between the Polish people and the Polish army that the Polish army is well respected and it will all stick up for its people. That's what I feel. And, um, and I think the um, Soviets were always scared of the Polish army, especially after 56. So obviously there's a few dominant personalities in Poland throughout the Cold War. One of them was Lech Walesa. When you were in Poland, what was what were your general impressions of him? Was he was he pervasive in popular culture and media? Well, when I first went out there, he was a bit of a non-person because he'd sort of been disappeared by the um, by the regime, shall we say? You know, because mm-hmm. when he came back, I mean, they did have great respect for him because he had. He was this guy who literally put his head above the parapet and defied the regime and. Make them give give in a bit, but what I did notice is, as the years passed, he got to be more and more unpopular, especially his presidency. So, all the time he wasn't, um, he, all the time he was an underground figure. He was he was very popular, but the minute he became part of the system. He became, he was popular as an underground figure, but once he became mainstream, he became increasingly unpopular with the Polish people. Why do you think that is? They, they considered, I think they considered him to be corrupt. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about that he had got money from various sources and, um, and they were embarrassed when he was president because he spoke work as Polish. He spoke like a normal guy in the street and, um, the students I was teaching and you know, um, middle-class people and upwards actually thought he was a bit of a joke. And the, and I think the working-class people didn't feel that he had changed that much. You know, it, Their lives hadn't changed that much. Okay, so they could vote. They could have their passports because under the regime, there was a, a thing that was different was you had to hand in your dovert, the internal passport, in order – First, you had to get permission to travel abroad. And secondly, you had to go and ask for a passport for external traveling. So after 89, anybody could get a passport and could travel where the hell they liked. So that was a, a plus. But again, most of the minutiae of life hadn't changed that much for ordinary people. It seems like he was caught between two two poles. The people who, no, no pun intended, but really the as you were saying, the, the more middle-class and intellectual classes 
who didn't feel he was an adequate representation of what they wanted a president to be. And then the the working class where he came from, who felt that he hadn't really achieved anything for them. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, yeah. So, Evan, how do you think he will be remembered historically? Well, I think, well, once he dies, and I wish him well, he'll probably go back to revert to being a hero in Poland. They did it with Pope Paul II. But I remember the last 10 years, do you know the British publication New Statesman? Yes, of course. He and Pope John Paul II came out in the top 100 of a poll done by the run by the New Statesman of great people of the 20th century. So in Britain, we still think he is a great guy. And people may say, oh, what happened to Lech? And it's Fuenza, but you know, people have different ways of saying that. And you tell him, well, he's still around. He was the president for a while and blah, blah, blah. So he, he's actually more popular in the West than he is in Poland as it stands at the moment. But I think in the long term in history, he will be seen in a better light than he is seen today in Poland. So during your time in the 1980s in Poland, did you have any contacts with Solidarity? Well, um, not official ones, but I mean in the sense of I knew people who later, I mean, my wife had been in Solidarity. She'd been arrested. But um, well, my wife to be a girlfriend at the time. And some of the friends I found out later were closer to Solidarity than I'd realised. And some were actually running some of the underground stuff locally. So, yes, I did. Okay. Well, flipping the sides for a second, one of the really interesting things, or one of the many interesting things that I, I picked up on when you and I chatted prior to our discussion today was the fact that you'd spent some time with General Jaroszewski. How did that come about? Well, I was doing some research at University of Bradford into, um, at the time, yeah, Poland was um, seeking to join NATO, and I was looking for um, people to interview. And I approached Jaroszewski's office, and um, one morning when I'm actually at the university, the, the phone rings, and my wife, who'd been in solidarity and had been arrested, uh, picks up the phone, and uh, says, on the other side, it says, uh, this is Jaroszewski's office. Can I speak to your husband? And my wife nearly dropped the phone. Shocked. Oh, my goodness. You can't make yeah. this stuff up. No. And um, But the good thing was if Jaroszewski um, ex agreeing to speak to me was, that in nine, when was it? 1999, I was trying to do elite interviews with Polish political politicians and senior officers and the like, and none of them would come back to me. So I went to see my contact at the Polish embassy, Wojciech Szalikowski, Colonel um, Wojciech Szalikowski, and I said to him, look, Wojciech, I've got a problem. The only person willing to see me and I'm going to Poland next month is General Jaroszewski. And he said, that is so embarrassing. And then he said to me, you know Janusz Oszakiewicz? I said, I do. He says, right. Write to him. Because by then, Janusz was... I first met Janusz when he was defense, the opposition defense minister. And by, the by this time, when I was speaking to Wojciech, he was the defense minister of Poland. And he said, write to Mr. Oszakiewicz in Polish at his yachting club, because the point was we're avoiding his office because the secretary probably just binned the letter. Mm -hmm. And um, I did so. I said, well, explain my position, my problems. And then I got a weird email, which didn't make sense. So I just said, you know, what's going on here? And on the same day, again, my wife is at home and she got another phone call from a Colonel Malachek. And he says, my boss says, we've got to go and work with your husband next month. And he was very stroppy about it. And um, then I got an email. I had a whole load of interviews lined up. With, with, um, I got, it was Adam, Admiral Piotr Kolodajek, who had been a defence minister, Jan Paris, Radic Sikorsky. Well, from Jan Paris, I got in contact with Radic Sikorsky and loads of different officers and senior politicians all off the back of the Jaroszewski agreeing to see me because they were shamed into seeing me. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. What were your impressions when you met Jaroszewski? 
Oh yeah, I mean, obviously you're going in, you're meeting a dictator, a former dictator. Yeah. And I remember going to his door, knocking on his office door, and it said, you know, W. Jaruzelski, Bowie President Polska, the former president of Poland, <laughs> knocked on the door, went into his um, anti-room, anti-office, and said who I was. My wife was with me because um, my Polish is pretty good, but it just brings the conversation along quicker if she does simultaneous um, translation. Sure. And, um, yeah, we ushered into his presence, and he was just an old man. He didn't look so old. He must have been 70-something. Wearing English tweeds, I looked at his eyes because, you know, the dark glasses and stuff. Mm-hmm. And yes, his mm-hmm. eyes were – the rims were twice as thick as yours and mine because of this experience he had when he was a prisoner of the Soviets in the snow and everything. And impressions of him, he was very polite. He had a sense of humor, which did surprise me. He was a mimic, but he was also very anxious to put the record straight. That's why he was seeing academics and journalists and whatnot. And he said to me he um, he was no Pinochet, which is absolutely true. You know, He may have been a military dictator, but he was no Pinochet. Um, so that's what he wanted to make quite clear. But one thing did attract my attention. It had nothing to do with any work I was doing, was I saw a disabled young man in his office. I thought, that's interesting, because Polish attitude to disability is extremely negative even to this day. And during the times, of the, during the communist times, you just did not really see um, disabled people in the streets. My mother-in-law has now passed, but she had multiple cirrhosis and was lame, and she was virtually housebound, not because of her disabilities. Nobody wanted to take her out. So for Yazowski to employ a disabled man, I thought was very interesting. Yeah, no, for sure. And, you know, what what surprised you the most about him when you met him, Evan? What, you know, you've talked about the sense of humor, his his mimicry. Was there anybody in particular he was especially good at mimicking? Yeah, Gamorka. He's doing how Gamorka is to give him orders, you know, and go, oh, God. But he told me one thing which I actually used. He told me that communism was born ill in Poland, and that's why it never worked. Well, he'd have been at the coal face and uh, probably would have known better than anybody, really. Well, yeah, but he said he was born an aristocrat and he became general secretary of the Polish United Workers' Party. Well, he did name a particular archbishop who was the son of a proletarian, an industrial worker, and he became a senior clergyman. So that's how turned upside down Poland is. And I asked him about NATO. Poland was at that time a on the cusp of going into NATO. And he thought it was the best idea ever. And I'm thinking, hang on, you were one of the senior generals of the Warsaw Pact, <laughs> and you think NATO's a good idea. So, fine. Uh, he's just very open. Um, I don't think by this time, in 1999, he's 75, I think he is, at that time. And you know that he didn't care. He just... It was nothing to do with him anymore, and he can put things on record. Nobody's going to arrest him and deport him to the back end of Siberia, and he's already had that done to him anyway. So um, he wasn't bothered anymore. So I'll flip this question to you about Yarozelski, like I asked about Walesa. How do you think history will remember him? He has actually remained very popular in Poland. I mean, most people in the West probably don't really remember him at all unless they are students of the Cold War or something. But in Poland, it's very positive about him because they still maintain that he kept the Soviets out of Poland in 81. Um, It's still debatable whether that's true or not. More and more light is being shed on these questions. Um, But they were probably right. I mean, he did keep them out, and it would have been a bloodbath if um, the Soviets had tried intervening, as they like to call it i.e. invading. Um, so, yeah, in Poland, it's, it's a very positive thing, um, not only just with the former communists and that, but ordinary people think that he's... He probably, they don't think they say he was a good man, but he understood and he made the compromises that perhaps they've all had to make, especially those who were born in the 20s of the wartime generation. They all had to make compromises and he understood those compromises and they understood his compromises. I mean, he didn't set out to be a communist in my head. He, um, his father died, I think, in front of him in the 
Soviet mines. And he joined the Polish army just to get out of those mines. And then when he got back to Poland at the end of the war, he'd been wounded twice in the fighting. His widowed mother and sister needed supporting, so he just remained in the Polish army. And one thing led to another, you know, so to... Because you could remain outside of the Communist Party up to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel, I found out. And basically, he wanted to get on. Was he a committed communist? I don't really know. It's hard to tell. But, yeah, his place in history in Poland is assured as a positive thing, unless some, some piece of paper in the archive was something quite different. Don't miss the extra information and videos, which will show as a link in your podcast app. If you can't wait for the next episode, please visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Now, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast without the generous support of our patrons. However, I want to especially thank our Politburo level members who are contributing a generous 30 US dollars a month to keep us on the air. They are Tony Sowards, Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, Mark Labance, Stephen Kovalich, Jeffrey Jones, Matthew Comstock, Ryan Vlaming, Frederick Esposito, Jack Madwed, and Peter Ryan. Don't forget, if you like one of those Cold War Conversations coasters and help support the show, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.